Are you ready for the end of the world? You are listening to Your Community Spirit, the show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again. The circle of friends, the circle of family, the circle of being. Being. Wake up! And be healthy and therefore welcome to the peace and joy of Mother Earth. You are listening to Your Community Spirit on your community radio station. This is Orda Energy Mon. And this is Tree Song. And we are here to give you live news from around the world. Occupy Everywhere. An independent report concerning police response to UC Berkeley protests has been released. In it, reviewers say they were disturbed by the quickness which police beat protesters with batons, saying they should have learned from previous campus protests. The school has created a protest response team to prepare for future events and say they realized they were inadequately prepared for something they knew was likely. Criticism of the police response in the UC school system abounds from the LA Times. Alright, some other news. Eight members of the Muslim community have filed a lawsuit against the NYPD as of yesterday, alleging that the NYPD's tactics are unconstitutional due to the use of race, religion, and national origin. It's the first lawsuit challenging the NYPD's surveillance techniques in which they basically stalked entire communities of people, finding out where and when they ate, prayed, worked, and did mundane tasks, such as getting a haircut. Uh, no, that's pretty dangerous information, when, when and where somebody gets a haircut. Uh, the NYPD commissioner says the surveillance is needed to prevent another 9-11 type attack. I mean, you know, that's what they always say. They say, like, you know, uh, in order to have more security, we need to have less freedom and have more surveillance on our privacy. I'm not really a big fan of that argument. Do you think that's why they allowed the 9-11 attack to happen? <laughs> I sometimes wonder. I mean, there, there are reports out there that they knew it was going to happen, and they ignored it. Yeah, it was certainly a very strange day. I've, I've heard debates back and forth about what happened, but it, it, they certainly did. The security complex did benefit a lot from that day. We suddenly passed the Homeland Security Act and all these other things. So, it's good, it's good to see people challenging the invasion of their privacy. Hey, their privacy. Our privacy. Our privacy. Everybody's privacy. First, it, first, you know, they go after that person, but I'm not that person, so who cares? Yeah. You know, I mean... An, in, an injury to one is an injury to all. Four occupiers were arrested in Milwaukee after they allegedly disobeyed police orders to stay on the sidewalk and moved into the street partially blocking traffic for a time. Roughly 40 protesters were marching, flanked by about 30 police officers. The four arrested were charged with disorderly conduct. Later, when the police chief was briefing reporters about the arrest, protesters shouted him down, according to several news outlets. Oh. All right, let's see what else we have today. Uh, we've got, uh, if you... If you go to our newsletter or go to the uh, Occupy Updates Daily, there's a link to an opinion piece describing the events of the city council meeting in which the ban of shields uh, demonstrations was proposed. Uh, it's actually written uh, scathingly against Occupy and has several quotes 
that show what some of the more fanatical people can be like. So it's interesting to hear a critical perspective, and this is related to Occupy Oakland. Now, I have said this before, and I want to, you know, repeat myself, I guess, that the environmental movement has been lamentably oppositional. Oppositional. Just, I mean, protests, I feel, are not effective. I feel like when you protest against something, you are creating negativity, and people don't listen to negativity. And so, I mean... You know, you can be against the war, you can be against this power plant, that factory, this energy project, that chemical. Now, I'm not saying you can't tell people about it, but as long as you are being negative, okay, basically, you know, protesting. Oppositionalism is woefully insufficient approach to pretty much anything, but especially climate change mitigation or adaptation. Now, if you think about it, most of the stuff that deals with climate change has to do with building stuff. New power systems, new transportation systems, new sustainability communities, new models of finance and ownership. I mean, literally a third industrial revolution. And you don't get those things by stopping things from happening. So, really, as it happens, the stereotype of the dire, dour dark green opposite opposite <laughs> it's time twister um, it's not accurate today if it ever was I mean all the greens I know especially the young ones are more bright green than dark committed to high tech sustainable economy that produces broadly shared prosperity have you heard of green jobs and all that huh. I've heard of green jobs I mean we have to shift you know the mentality of being against things Four things. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a uh, perspective I've heard on Gandhian nonviolence, where there were two parts, and people don't often know about the second part. The first part is the resistance program, where you put yourself in the way of the destructive things that are going on. But the second part is the constructive program, where you create a, a nonviolent society. You know, you cooperate with people in your community who agree with you and try to create a new world. And people often know about the resistance part, but not the constructive part. And that's exactly what this article is about. We need the constructive parts. Uh, is it not enough to stop destruction if you have to create something sustainable? Speaking of creating something sustainable, this is a book by Pigeon Books called Poor Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food by Paul Greenberg. And in this, they're talking about the fact that, you know, they, they talk about the bad things, large-scale commercial fishing, our delicate relationship with the last really wild food, mm. extensive fish farming, and questionable environmental standards. But it goes into how can we change fishing practices and fishing techniques in order to prevent mass extinction of the you know wild fish population. Mm. And there are I mean, there's no formal ocean policy to guide international practices. So this is a deeply researched, just utterly charming love letter to the fish that he has hunted, studied, and eaten throughout his life. I mean, he is an uh, award-winning writer and a lifelong um, angler. Is that how you say it? Uh, angler, yeah. Yeah, a fisherman. So, um, interesting book, writing about seafood in the oceans, 
Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food, by Pigeon Books. Let's see, we've got some news here about Shell. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting story. I don't know, should we read, should we read it as a si- serious story first and then mention the other part? Or? Let's, I mean, let's... I got... It, it, this whole thing was a hoax. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, I actually got the press release from Shell saying that they were against it, that it really wasn't them. Yeah. <laughs> so, But the thing was, is the event was a hoax, and the press release coming from Shell being very heavy-handed against it was a hoax. <laughs> it was too. also a hoax, yeah. <laughs> so, like, both sides of it, I mean, they handled the whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, basically this was a party. Yeah. Yeah, the original story was that... Uh, uh, yeah, they're having a party that they do a private party in Seattle Space Needle, uh, close to where its northbound uh, rig is docked, to commemorate the launch of its North Arctic drilling operation. It's like, yes, we're going to ar- <laughs> drill in the Arctic. Let's yeah, have a party. Let's have a drilling party. Uh, but then, uh, but then they they created this uh, whole hoax about it. Is that? Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, Shell actually has spent over four billion dollars and countless man hours lobbying to be the first to drill in the Arctic. Yeah, so it's something that for the company, in, in the real company, is a big deal. Like, right. They've been putting a lot of work in this thing. And what happened was they had this Arctic rig, um, you know, sculpture <laughs> that was supposed to, you know, be a fountain for liquor. Yeah. And when they turned it on, it was, you know, a simulated oil rig. It started spewing liquor all over the yeah, place. Yeah, the liquor went everywhere, you know. It's, and it was supposed to be like a nice, fun, party photo op, but then the rig exploded and there's liquor flowing everywhere. And, and the thing was, is how it got out into the public was an Occupy guy snuck into the party yeah. and brought out video <laughs> and then sent that out to the press. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole thing was a hoax. Like, the party, the oil were spewing out there, um releasing the video to the press, so all the mainstream press had this thing about that, that basically they couldn't even handle, like, a, you know, a three-foot oil rig shooting alcohol, let alone actual oil yeah. in the Arctic. <laughs> um, and then, you know, then the press release is coming from Shell itself saying, that wasn't our party, we're, you know, we're very good at cleaning up the oil, mm-hmm. and... I mean, the thing is, is, you know, we're very good at cleaning up the oil. We can handle cleaning up the oil. But the truth is, nobody can clean up oil. Yeah. That's just not possible. No matter how much you are good at it, you can't actually clean it all up. Yeah. And so people were like, what do you mean, Shell, you're good at cleaning up oil? What about the oil mm-hmm. that is all over here that you haven't cleaned up? And so it's... Yeah. It's so then the first Shell that thought, the first way that Shell probably hears about this is the responses to their fake letter. It's <laughs> just like that. Yeah. And it's They're great like, reading this article, too, because, you know, first it's got the original story, then it says, you know, uh, that Shell may be uh, suing uh, the, the protesters. Oh, yeah, the letter said it was a, there was a lawsuit against the, the protest, that it was a hoax. And that came out, like, hours after the event. Yeah. So it was like Shell was on top of it, but it was such a heavy-handed letter. I actually got it. Because, you know, we're press. Yeah. So apparently, I mean, I don't know how they know we're press, but <laughs> apparently, you know, they sent it out extensively to press. Yeah. Like, we got it. I mean, They're sending it to community radio stations in Southern Illinois. <laughs> it's going out everywhere. So, yeah, like the threat of a lawsuit, you know. So literally it was like the event went out. And then, you know, a couple hours later, the shell response that they were going to sue them 
for defaming their name that, uh -huh. yes, they were good at cleaning up oil. What do you mean we're not good at cleaning up oil? You know, and so, yeah, there's a big backlash against them because they're apparently not good at cleaning up oil. Yeah. I kind of wish it had broken a day or two later so we could have actually been spoofed and not known it was a hoax. <laughs> Well, I mean... Uh, we would have probably known about the shell letter, but then we wouldn't have known yet that the shell the letter shell was... The shell letter! <laughs> it's a shell game. Yeah. It's a shell letter. Play the shell game. But yeah, this, this is a... You know, people are going to be critical of it, I'm sure, but this is a great way to bring attention to the issue of the fact that oil spills do happen. And, uh, and they plan to start drilling off the Alaska's northern shore by July. So, I mean, yeah. yeah so. so there's going to be more spills, almost undoubtedly. So, you know, apparently they threw a, a big cele celebratory party, but it turned out to be a hoax. So. Yeah. I mean, you would think they would throw a celebrity party after spending $4 billion lobbying. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why they didn't reply right away. They were somewhere else having the real party. <laughs> they were probably hung up. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, all right. In other dire, horrific news... <laughs> Genetically modified canola found growing wild in Switzerland, even though it's completely and totally banned in Switzerland. Oh. Wait a second. It's banned, yet they found it growing wild? That lawless canola. <laughs> yeah. An example of how genetically modified crops aren't quite as easy to control as their manufacturers would like. The report is even though Switzerland has had a ban on the cultivation of GM crops in place for the past seven years and prohibits importation of the same for either human or animal consumption, meaning a complete and total ban not allowed to go through their country at yeah. all. Nonetheless, genetically engineered oilseed rape, or canola, has been found growing in a port area of Basel. In, in total, 136 canola plants were found, 29 of them revealed by testing to be Monsanto's GT73 RT-73, a crop designed to be resistant to Monsanto's Roundup herbicide. It's suspected that the GM canola established itself after seed fell to the ground while being transported on a barge or freight train. Or, I mean, if you really want to get conspiracy theory, <laughs> someone who doesn't like Monsanto planted <laughs> Yeah. Which is like... Yeah, another, discredit that. Another spoof. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that could be the next hoax. But, but uh, no, I mean, that's part of why I'm really concerned about... Uh, uh, genetically modified foods, animals, all that sort of things. Because once you let the genie out of the box, I mean, out of the bottle, out what, of the seed. Yeah, out of the seed. What do you do? Because I mean, I do. I do. I'm a, I'm a science person. I'm a technology person. I'm not afraid of technology. But this is one of those things where life is self-replicating. If you make a mistake in the design process and then it self-replicates onto the environment, you have a lot of difficulties that result. It's like there's no way. No easy way to pull it back into the laboratory out of the wild once it's in the wild. So you're a scientist. What do you think of uh, this creepy next article? <laughs> yeah, is this... it creepy? I personally don't think it's creepy. It's but... it's socially. Uh, I guess it violates a social tabby. Really? I mean, uh, well, because it's a waste product. Yeah. Well, furniture made from plastic bottles and human hair looks comfy and creepy. Well, it looks creepy because it's clear plastic. Yeah. So they got the plastic bottles to make, you know, the outside, and then they stuffed it full of human hair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, in uh, Switzerland, again, they figured out, what do they do with the thousand miles of hair grown by Swedes every year? 
that's based on a rate of seven inches per year in a population of nine million people. Oh, yeah. So they, you know, people get haircuts. Well, some people do. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently, the Swiss get haircuts, and um, so the Swedish desi- Swedish designer came up with furniture that, well, you just they go to the salon's customers' heads. Well, not their heads, but the <laughs> salons. The, yeah. You know, they cut the hair. They it falls to the floor. They sweep it up. I, I don't know. Do you think they wash it? I don't know. What do they do with it? I mean, um, anyway, they put it in these plastic bags. I mean, if it wasn't a clear plastic bag, I don't think anybody would have a problem with it. Yeah, people wouldn't even notice. You know, they'd be like, oh, you know, it was like... Yeah, what's in a bean bag? Yeah. <laughs> you don't know until you cut it open. Yeah. There could be beans in it, or there could be, you know, I don't know, fingers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people. Yeah. Don't open your bean bags. There shouldn't be anything. There, there's science in there. <laughs> That's what's in there. So. But yeah, because it's transparent, people it, like some people think they're gonna be itchy when they sit on it, even though there's plastic between the, you and the hair. I can see why you think that, but it's it's not. It's it's an interesting taboo there. Well, I mean, they used to have hair couches. <laughs> that the, that doesn't sound like a good idea. The actual outside. I mean, it was a you know a leather couch with yeah. hair still on. Oh yeah. Oh, that sounds okay, but a hair couch? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, now that you mentioned it, though, I hadn't thought of it. But now that you mentioned yeah, it, though, I, I have mean, seen that existing. Yeah, I mean, you know, they just you know left the hair on it, and so that was the couch. Yeah. You know, now it's inside plastic. I don't know. <laughs> that maybe the idea that it's you know a thousand people's hair or something like that. Oh yeah. Or you, you know you could just collect your own hair and you know once every. <laughs> I don't know, five years, make a pillowcase. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in other Monsanto news, we've got a roundup of Monsanto jokes. A roundup, yeah, come on. That <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. A roundup of Monsanto news. Grow GMO beets or face a sugar shortage. If you're Monsanto, you're probably really proud of your genetically modified sugar beets. Introduced in 2008, Beats are the company's most recent Roundup-ready product, genetically engineered to withstand the direct application of the herbicide. Immediately successful, they took over the sugar beet market within two years. In fact, by 2010, 95% of the sugar beets grown in the U.S. were Monsanto's genetically modified variety. This matters to us because about 50% of the white sugar sold in the U.S. is made from sugar beets. In other words, unless the bag of sugar you bought is labeled certified organic or 100% cane sugar, it almost certainly contains sugar made from GMO crops. There was a reason for Monsanto's success with sugar beets, and not just because it was able to leverage its market power. The weed problem. Apparently, weeds had become resistant, or not weeds. Sugar beets, is that right? Sugar beets and weeds had become resistant to Roundup. Mm-hmm. And so they need to make a new version of it. But the sugar beets on the existing market died when you sprayed the new version of Roundup on there. Uh, yeah. So they had to get one that was, you know, because the weeds had got resistant to the chemical. Yeah, the weeds caught up. <laughs> so, so they had to come up with a new uh, modified plant. So in 2010, a federal judge revoked the U.S. Department of Agriculture's approval for the seed response to a lawsuit filed by the Center for Food Safety on the basis that the agency violated the law by failing to perform 
guess what? A full environmental impact statement of the seed. Huh. Why would we have to have an environmental impact statement on a seed? Huh. We have to because we've messed with them. Yeah. Right? Anyway, um, so the problem with the judge's order, the judge's order was that Monsanto had success, so successfully crowded out other sugar beet competitors that once he ruled the beets illegal, it became clear that there was no conventional sugar beets to be found anymore. Yeah, it, they got crowded out of the market. For two years, yeah. they eliminated any seeds from any other sugar beet manufacturer. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty crazy. So America faced the prospect of a 20% reduction in that year's sugar crop. Now, in response and in defiance of the federal judge's, judge's order, the USDA allowed farmers to plant GM sugar beets anyway. Now, I'm happy to report that our long national nightmare is over. At last, the USDA has released its full environmental review of Roundup Ready sugar beets. In it, the agency describes the risks for genetic, genetic contamination as well as the likelihood of increased herbicide resistance. So what is the USDA re recommending? Full deregulation of GMO sugar beets, which will allow for the unrestricted planting. <laughs> Wait, what? What? Well, what? I, that doesn't quite make okay. sense. I mean, in their report, they literally say that they're going to have to continue to change, you know, the the GMO quality of the beet uh -huh. as the weeds get increasingly more resistant. Yeah, they're the just going to have to keep racing against the weeds. Right. Well, I, I don't have the report in front of me, but the report probably does the classic thing of saying, well, we'll deregulate everything as long as you keep these certain things in mind. Like, probably trying to get them to not increase it too quickly and, you know, don't overspray. The things they already say that aren't working. It seems like we have this thing called biodiversity. <laughs> yeah. And if we actually have biodiversity, you know, plants are resistant naturally. Yeah. The plants learn, you know, the plants learn how to resist the herbicide. I so. actually don't have a problem with genetically modifying. You get, you know this type of beat with this type of beat and it shortens the thing. But they're genetically modifying it for a chemical. Mm, yeah. Which that part doesn't work. So. Alright. In good news, huh. a roundup of Monsanto stories. Yes. Yeah, so we've got Monsanto's drought tolerant corn outpaced by conventional breeding and better farming practices. Uh, though genetic engineering proponents often claim that they'll be able to produce drought-tolerant crop varieties that outperform the conventional hybrids, and that the GM crops are an ideal solution to climate change, food security, and everything else under the sun, a new report from the Union of Concerned Scientists casts serious doubt on these posts. So the, the report says that farmers are always looking to reduce losses from drought, but the biotech industry has made little real-world progress on this problem. Despite many years of research and millions of dollars in development costs, drought guard doesn't outperform the non-engineered alternatives. Okay, they say many years of research. The existing corn out there has, like, thousands of years of research. Yeah, there have been these people called farmers who have been <laughs> researching in the fields for, for millennia, honestly, with corn's case. All right. In other news, Fox News in shock. Is that news? Yes, oh, it is. Because... Composting toilets don't smell. 
<laughs> Wait a second. Fox News reported on composting toilets? That's right. It's not just us tree huggers who are cottoning onto the flushing away. Our proof with clean drinking water isn't the only way of dealing with waste. I think it's pretty funny that being civilized means you move your toilet inside and your kitchen outside. <laughs> okay? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um... Even Fox News has decided to explore the pluses and minuses of the composting toilet, and they seem to have come away rather surprised. Quote, it turns out, however, that compost toilets are, and I can't believe I'm saying this, not gross. I spoke to Frazier, manager of Sunmar Corporation, and immediately got down to the most important question. Do compost toilets smell? I figured if the answer to that question was yes, there wasn't really any need for any other questions. Fraser explained a couple of things right out of the gate. First, he said, all of our models have a vent stack. The venting does help ensure we have no odor. And that's the end of the quote from Fox News. Uh, yeah. It's like... Yeah. Yeah, honestly, you know, if the difference between a composting toilet and one, you know, a water-based toilet, if, if the water-based toilet is in a room that doesn't have ventilation, it's actually going to smell more than the composting toilet. Because the composting toilet, at least, you know, the ones they're describing have a ventilation there. All right. Let's talk about the holidays. Yes, holidays. It is almost summer. Yes. Today happens to be Upsy Daisy Day and the UN World Ocean Day and the anniversary of the Bill of Rights. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, I mean, we should have a party and celebrate... That we have our Bill of Rights. Yeah. But then the party, well, the party will get busted up. We'll all be arrested for that. Uh, yes. If we did it, we should, I mean, literally, we should be doing it in public. Yeah, Bill of Rights, public speech. Yeah, it's like, and see if they arrest us or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, Saturday is the birthday of Cole Porter, the composer, and Donald Duck. Yeah, there's a balance there. <laughs> Sunday, anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Ballpoint Pen. Yes, and Monday is the birthday of Jacques Cousteau, the ocean explorer, and Richard Strauss, another composer. Tuesday is Abused Women and Children's Awareness Day, Crowded Nest Awareness Day, and Multicultural American Child Awareness Day. Oh, and also the birthday of Anne Frank. Wednesday, let's see, Wednesday is the birthday of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, the actresses. Well, I mean, if you're going to say them, we're going to have to say that Tuesday is the birthday of George H.W. Bush. Oh, my. You can't, like, skip George H.W. Bush and put Mary-Kate in action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Thursday is Family History Day and Flag Day in the United States. The anniversary, Flag Day is the anniversary of the Stars and Stripes. Yes, and also the birthday of the author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And it's also the anniversary of the U.S. Army. So, all right. We've had a nice, peaceful, and quiet little time here, but yeah. SIU summer session starts next week. Yes, so Tom's going to get busy again. Get ready for an influx of chaos. Mm -hmm. no, summer chaos. Yes, so we've got... Bunch of happenings going on in the meantime, though. Like, for example, we have the open mic night at Guy House. This week's theme is Good Morning. You can have songs about morning, dawn, waking up, staying up until the wee hours of the morning. That's uh, Guy House. It starts at 6 p.m. tonight at 9.13 South Illinois in Carbondale. Friday's 
International Slow Food Dinner, Friday's Rice and Spice, every Friday, 6 to 9 p.m. at the Gaia House. This Friday, we celebrate Grinner, Breakfast for Dinner. Yes. And people get all hyped up about it. <laughs> I mean, do people not have breakfast whenever they want? A lot of people don't. I think it's because, you know, people wake up late and then they just have enough time to go to work or school or whatever, and they don't get a, a full breakfast. They might get, like, a granola bar or half a bowl of cereal. Yeah, people are excited about this dinner tonight, or Brinner tonight. Brinner. Biscuits and gravy, fruit salad, hash browns and bacon. And, of course, stick around afterwards and dance the night away at Friday Night Salsa with Lessons at 9 and dances starting at 10 o'clock at the Guy House Interface Center. Yes, another Friday events we've got at the Carbondale Town Square Pavilion, the Friday Night Fair. That goes from 6 to 9 p.m. tonight. All sorts of good music, food, and such out there. Uh, Venturis will be providing the entertainment, as will all the, the booths that they have there. Saturday, June 9th at 7 p.m., campfire program at the Crab Orchard Wildlife Refuge. Bring a chair and some marshmallows and join a park ranger for an educational program on Southern Illinois wildlife at Crab Orchard Wildlife Refuge tomorrow at 7 p.m. And some Habitat for Humanity. That's uh, 2035 410th Street in Murfreesboro this Saturday, starting at 8 a.m. and working until noon. And don't forget Saturday mornings, the farmer's market, 8 till noon. There will be a lot of berries and lots and lots of vegetables. And then right after that, the Vigil for Peace, Saturdays, noon to 1 p.m., corner of Maine and Illinois, brought to you by the Peace Coalition of Southern Illinois. Anything else? Oh, I think that's good for now. I'm sure there's more going on. but I, I will not be here next week because the Midwest Renewable Energy Fair, and I almost forgot to mention that. Yeah. It is MidwestRenew.org. It's the world's largest do-it-yourself renewable energy fair, a couple hundred workshops, over ten bands, um, vendors, all on a completely renewable energy-powered campus in Wisconsin. And I do have a couple spaces left in my van. Um, yes, and I might be going too, so I might be taking one of those spaces. But yeah. we'll have someone here for you next week if I'm gone. Um, go to MidwestRenew.org, look it over, and uh, let us know. Um, 618-893-1717 if you want to ride. So. Yes. In the meantime, it's wonderful weather out there, and it's going to get out hot soon, so enjoy it while you can.